Well, our main reading today is Revelation 19. And if using the church Bibles, that should be found on page 1039. And it says this. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her blood On her, the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped. God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself, with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress on the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, let me just remind you that at the end of the sermon, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. There's also your order of sermon outline and your order of service that you may wish to use, if that's helpful. And most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent together reading and studying your word and reflecting of the truth of it. We thank you, as we have before, that you've given us this glimpse of what is happening in behind the curtain so that we can understand the experience that we have here on earth and understand it according to your plan and purpose. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, it may help us to persevere and continue to not compromise, but remain faithful, so that we can look forward to the day when we'll partake in the new heavens and the new earth and dwell with you. Amen. Well, in his book, The Incarnation, Athanasius teases out the full implications of the fall. God has spoken, and the punishment is death. It's the same word that's spoken at the very beginning. It's the same word that brings creation into existence and created man in his image. If God let, let man off, then that would mean God going back on his word. God would be a liar. But it would be equally problematic if God allowed his image bearers to come to ruin. God's work would come to nothing. So whatever solution is proposed, it must be able to achieve two things. First, vindicate God's word so that God doesn't go back on his word. Second, Salvation for mankind, so God's image bearers do not come to corruption. The solution must be as comprehensive as the problem. And Athanasius goes on to explain that the solution is found in the Father's Son. Now the Son couldn't die. So first, he took upon himself a body that was capable of death. Now the son could die and be in exchange for all those who believed. He could make those who were corruptible, uncorruptible. This means two things. Two things that directly correlate to the original problem. 
God's word is vindicated. There is a death. The death of the one who's capable of taking the punishment of many lives, since he himself is the uncreated creator. It means salvation for mankind. God's image bearers do not come to corruption, since everyone who believes in the Son will be part of the new heaven and the new earth. What is interesting is how the death of the Son is achieved. It follows that same pattern that's established at the fall. God, the generous creator, provided everything his image bearers required for their life to be sustained. He also provides them with every tree to eat from. He gives a single prohibition. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. By eating of the tree, the first man and woman evaluate God's word and conclude God is a liar. He isn't the benevolent creator. He is keeping that which is desirable from them. Now when Jesus walks on the earth, the same pattern occurs once again. The Son comes into the world to forgive sins. And he does so with the authority of the Father. The teachers, they reject Jesus and call him a self-serving blasphemer. They crucify Jesus as a liar. What we see is the same pattern of rejection. Yet it's through this rejection that the Father provides our salvation through the Son. But this is a pattern that still continues now. When God's representatives, the church, testify to the forgiveness brought through the Son, well, while some will repent and do believe, many still reject the Son. They still call him and his representatives a liar. In extreme cases, they may even turn and kill those that testify to the Son, just as they did with him. And so we see God's rule is still contended. God's people are yet to live in the safety of his kingdom in all its fullness. God's word still awaits its final and full vindication. And this is what we've been exploring in the book of Revelation. And today's passage, Revelation 19, continues this. As we've been reading through the book of Revelation, at various points we've been introduced to a woman. So if we were to go back to chapter 12, there we meet a woman. She's about to give birth. And a dragon is standing, waiting for her to give birth, because as soon as she does, the dragon intends to eat the baby. But the dragon never has the opportunity. The child is whisked away to heaven, because the child will become the king. The dragon is partially defeated, 
But until its complete destruction, the dragon pursues the woman in the wilderness. We also met a woman last week when we were looking at chapter 18. This woman is dressed in fine clothes. She's arrayed in jewels and rides on the beast. She holds a golden cup full of abominations and sexual immoralities. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. These are clearly not the same women. Instead, they are polar opposites of one another. In chapter 19, both these women are revisited. First, in the early verses of chapter 19, there's a great celebration by the multitude in heaven because God's word has been vindicated. You can see in verse 2, for his judgments are true and just. And it's all because the woman who rode the dragon, who was drunk on the blood of the saints, has been destroyed. That prayer of the saints has been answered. Then there follows this, another celebration in heaven. This one revolves around the other woman that was mentioned back in chapter 12. Because the woman in chapter 12 represents the people of God. And this woman has become a bride. God is given glory in this celebration because the marriage is about to take place between the Lamb and his bride. Now that these two episodes take place in this order is necessary. As we've seen as we've studied Revelation, while the people of God have suffered at the hands of Babylon, which symbolises that which is hostile towards the church, ultimately this has all occurred under God's providence. The saints have been constantly refined. Their faith has been put to the test, the temptation to compromise, and the resistance to doing so has proved their faith to be genuine, authentic. Their ability to stand fast under the pressure and persevere to the end means that now they've been prepared for the wedding of the Lamb. The existence of Babylon was necessary and it isn't until Babylon is removed that the wedding can now take place. This brings us to the fine linen which we are given, which are given to the bride to clothe herself. And this fine linen in verse 8 is said to be the righteous deeds of the saints. Now the translation has the potential to cover two options. The first is the righteous deeds performed by the saints. The second is the judgments on behalf of the saints. The first, the righteous deeds performed by the saints. 
The second is the judgment on behalf of the saints. Both have the potential to explain the imagery of the fine linen. The first relates to what we've just been exploring. We are justified by faith alone. We can contribute in no way to our salvation. But having become part of God's people, the faith that we have should be reflected in a continued trust in God. We do not compromise when suffering comes. We do not give in when the pressure of this world would mean it would be easier not to believe. We persevere until the end. And the fine linen robe we are given represents this. Alternatively, we have what we read back in Isaiah 61 earlier on. Here the people of Israel are in exile and the nations have mocked them for it. But the people have stood firm and now God will vindicate his people by bringing them back to the land. He will judge those people that lorded it over them. And in verse 10 of chapter 61 we read that he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Here the robes picture the righteous judgment of God on behalf of the people. Which is paralleled in Revelation 19 and that before the marriage of the Lamb can take place, the arch enemy must be destroyed. And God does destroy those that have opposed his people. So the final inning could be the righteous judgment on behalf of the people. God's vindication of his people. So, which one is it? Well, I guess the question is, do we need to decide? After all, both are tied so closely. The people of God are put pressure on to conform but they are called to persevere, for one day God will vindicate his people on their behalf. We've seen there are two women, we've seen there are two celebrations, but we also see there are two dinners or suppers. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's found back in verse 9. The second is the Great Supper of God, which is found in verse 17. Once again, they contrast one another. The first is a celebration, for the marriage is taking place between the Lamb who has laid his life down for his people, and they've been prepared, having remained faithful through the trials of the world. But in order for this marriage to be fully consummated, Christ must protect his bride from those that would cause his suffering, her suffering. The people's final enemy is destroyed. The beast and the false prophet who desire us to turn God's people, who desire us to turn, is, whose desire is to turn God's people from him to serve the beast. 
And so we see Revelation 19 is the final solution to the problem that was outlined at the start from Athanasius. God's word is vindicated. God is not a liar. His ways are truth and just. God's image bearers will not come to ruin. All those who would deter them from their God are destroyed. And it should come as no surprise to us that in the book of Revelation, we find the solution to the problem found in Genesis 3. As we read Revelation, we still live in the time that God's kingdom is established. His enemies haven't yet been destroyed. His word has been vindicated, but we still look forward to our vindication. Which means now is the time not to compromise, but to stand firm. Not to give in, but to persevere. So that we will be welcomed to that marriage supper as the bride of the Lamb. Where we will shelter in the presence of the one who is on the throne. And God will wipe away every tear from our eye. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the promise that you've made, that in the new heavens and the new earth you shall, we shall shelter in the presence, in your presence, and that you will wipe away every tear from our eye, might we appreciate that in order for you to do this, you must destroy your enemies and destroy those who would cause us suffering. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these things, it would cause us to bear with things now. Not to compromise, but to remain faithful. To carefully study and reflect, your, uh, reflect on your word, so we might know you, the God that we serve, and the promises that you've made us, that you'll keep us to the end. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning there'd be an opportunity for questions. That time has now arrived. So we normally have maybe time for about three. Any questions? Yes. Okay, yeah, sure. So let me just um, repeat the question for the recording. So we read in um, verses, verse 20 of chapter 19, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, 
And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so some people talk in terms of annihilation. So when they're sent, when people are sent here, it's a final death and they don't go on living. Other people um, suggest it is eternal torment. What do we think of this? Well, let's let me think. I'm just going to, Adrian, have you got, is there another? Oh, well, let's wait till then. then. <laughs> yeah. Chapter 14, verse 11. Cool. Okay, so chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Interestingly, I think one of the things to bear in mind when exploring this question, is that there are, Adrian's been calling it the bifurcation. Um, so there's basically, everything's very simple and straightforward in the, in the book of Revelation, to which you might be thinking, is it? And when I mean simple, there's no, it's not sophisticated in that there's complexities. Basically, there's two groups. There's the goodies, the baddies, to put it crudely. There's those who are saved and those that aren't saved. There's those that have the beast, the mark of the beast, and those that have the seal of the um, the lamb or the seal of God on their foreheads. So as you work through the book, you find this very straightforward, down the line, you're on this side or you're on that side. And also you see that in the symbolism as well. So here in verse 11... The symbolism is eternal torment and no rest to be found. Where elsewhere it talks about, and I can't remember where, probably in chapter 14, but it talks about the eternal rest or the rest that is given to the those people who do have the mark of the uh, mark of God. So you have this contrast between those who have the mark of God who will have eternal rest and those who have the mark of the beast who will have eternal torment. But it, and, and then I guess the thing is, is then what do you do with verse 11? And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. You could say, oh, well, we're taking Revelation as symbolic. So therefore, could this eternal torment be symbolic? And actually then we can settle an annihilation. That might be a fair approach, but I guess the problem you come up with then is, well, what of our eternal um, rest? Is our eternal rest also symbolic? 
what does that symbol symbolism look like? So I think this is the uh, maybe a difficulty when we read through Revelation. It is symbolic. There is symbolism. But if we take that symbolism too far, we could compromise the truths that we're promised. So obviously we'll explore this further, as Adrian says, next week. But as it stands, I think it makes more sense to take it as an eternal suffering as opposed to a final annihilation. Um, yeah, I, I, that is the traditional approach as well. That's, um, yeah. Is that okay? Time for another? Yes, Nikki. Yeah, interesting question. Um, do you remember where we saw those two beasts? Thirteen. So in chapter 13, we see two beasts, the first beast, the second beast. And here, with, obviously, we've been thinking in terms of the mark of the beast. And in verse 19, um, yeah, um, do you know, I'm not sure in as far as I've not really been following it. But I think what happens to the first beast again I might have to refer to Adrian he is our revelation uh, scholar Yeah. Okay, so just to repeat that for the recording. So what we have in the beast is a parody of the Trinity and I think Adrian's suggesting the first beast, because he's the one who endures a wound, but it's not fatal. So that is a parody of Christ, who um, endures a wound and then is raised from the dead. And so that beast probably makes most sense that it's that beast that the, is the mark of the beast, because that parodies Christ. Okay, any more questions for Adrian? <laughs> Time.
Time for one more. <laughs> Can someone escort that person out, please? <laughs> Yes, Nathan. Um, I think we might be more common. Just that it's cool to see how much previous imagery we've seen in Revelation um, comes to mind in chapter 19, particularly some of the stuff we were looking at in um, Revelation 2 to 3. Um, so I think we have the promise of people being joined to the white men at the best of the end. Yeah, very true. I do feel like the book of Revelation is one of those books, but by the time you've read through it and got to the end, the best thing to do is probably start again. Now that you've seen some of the imagery that's been introduced, you can revisit that earlier imagery and see how that informs of us of what that imagery is. And also, as we've done a bit, to keep going back to the book of Daniel, because they highly depend upon one another. And so the imagery of Daniel and the imagery of Revelation, if you could keep going back round and round and rereading them, I think that's when you best understand what's going on as you continue to deepen the depth of what that imagery is pointing to. Thank you, Nathan.